Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 155 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing today? It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. And the releases that just came out this week, they release something new every month, and the first one was the Dave Apollon Volume 2 collection. They did three of the choral label LPs and they've remastered them so they sound incredible. And then also uh, the Acoustic Encounters talking about DGQ20. So be sure and check that out. It's always fun to hear Danny Barnes and Dog talk about uh, Dog's history. Hope everybody is doing well. I think I finally caught up on sleep from IBMA here. What a great time. Holy moly. Uh, one of the people actually I got to talk with was Seth Mulder and they had an album come out at the beginning of September. He had been on the podcast before that. But, um, man, there is a great instrumental track on there called Bullhead Swamp. And I was talking with Seth via text yesterday, and he's going to let me put that. It's at the very end of this podcast, the entire version of it. And you should check it out, and you should check out that entire el- the entire album is great. It's called In Dreams. I go back, and it's available now. I also want to remind everybody, too, that Jake Jolliffe, my buddy Jake, has got that mandolin camp coming up here pretty quickly as well. It's November 11th through the 13th, so if you're looking for a way to jumpstart your practice regime, uh, Jake promises this will give you a lot of ideas. And if you want more information, the best way is to reach out to Jake via his email, which is jhdjolliffe at yahoo.com. My guest this week is the incredible Steve Smith. Such great tone, great guy. Um, one thing is his his music's a little bit tough to find because he shares the name with the drummer or the former drummer from the band Journey. So when you type in Steve Smith, you're going to find a lot of uh, crazy jazz fusion stuff. So I've posted links in the description and at mandolinsandbeer.com so you can find his music and purchase it. And I'll also have a link to his website as well. So it was really great talking with him. Also, still trying to get my website updated to include Apple Pay and all the new merch. I am sold out of hats still, working on getting more hats. Uh, The mandolin shirts I have in black and white, the Supreme logo should be up there soon. It's just a nightmare trying to figure this stuff out. I wish I was tech savvy, but unfortunately, I am not. So, but you know who's tech savvy? Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who, you ask? Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibes, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. Brazilian Shoro music. Uh, all of them include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Best part. Go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout, and you'll get your first 30 days for free. And actually, if you go to straightupstrings.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout, and all caps as well, you can get 10% off not just single packs of strings, you can get it off the set of strings, and you can get it off all of Roger's incredible books. So go to Straight Up Strings, and also when you're there, sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter's fantastic. It's always filled with great information. And find out why people like C.J. Lewandowski, uh, Wyatt Ellis, Tristan Scroggins, why they use Straight Up Strings. You hear every note from every chord. Best way to find out yourself is to order a set and get yourself 10% off now by using that promo code at straightupstrings.com. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. 
Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. We definitely talk about Ellis Mandolins during this episode as Steve plays an Ellis Mandolin and his other mandolin is a lore. So I think that says a lot about Ellis Mandolins. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can use them anytime at Elderly.com. I'm hoping to find some time to get there myself. I'm going to be in Michigan with my Tom Petty Bluegrass Tribute Band. We're in Grand Rapids at the Listening Room on November 3rd. We're at the State Theater in Bay City on November 4th. That's a Friday. And Saturday, November 5th. We are at Otis Supply in the Parliament Room. So please, uh, if you live in Michigan, I would love to see you. Come on out to those shows. All right, let's get into the episode with Steve Smith, everybody. Hope everyone has a fantastic week. Be sure to stick around for the Seth Mulder track at the end of this episode. Talk to you soon. Cheers, everybody. It's my pleasure to have on the podcast, Steve Smith. How's it going, Steve? Oh, well, Daniel, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, man, thank you so much for doing it. You know, we had I had delusions of grandeur of doing this interview in person at IBMA, and then you know how IBMA becomes, it becomes chaos, and we never, never got to link up. <laughs> it, it can be overwhelming, you know, trying to put things together and see everybody, and, uh, and although we didn't, we weren't there, Tim May and I weren't there long. We did get to see some good friends in our short period. We weren't even there, you know. We were there maybe, maybe eighteen hours is all we were there because we had to leave for another concert, and and so the whirlwind thing. And the and the thing with that too is you had mentioned you were there for just a short time, and it just seems. I mean, everybody's reconnecting again and getting to see people they hadn't seen and seen in forever. Seems like, you know, we could do this over the phone as easy as we could do it in person, let you spend the 18 hours, you know, seeing people you haven't seen in forever. So, and here we are. You know, getting to reconnect has been really nice. And it's funny how, um, it's funny, you know, during COVID, people people develop different types of relationships. You know, they get in touch on Facebook or they'd, they'd, they'd Zoom and have a drink on Zoom and talk about how they were doing. And and there were lots of recording sessions that, that, that did, you know, did file exchange and things like that. And, and so... It wasn't. Um, it wasn't something that. It wasn't like it killed everything off and was like unfertile. It was actually sort of a different sort of, different sort of environment that we we got to learn about ourselves and probably a lot of other people too and and what we're capable of doing in isolation. Although humans in general, I think, are not not meant to be isolated. Um, um, I think a lot of people did a lot of really good stuff during that time period. And like you said about people, now your people aren't meant to be isolated. We're also meant to evolve, and a lot of musicians and fans did that. And fans were able to connect in a way that they never had been. And I mean, you could take a lesson from your favorite player online now. Yeah, you know, it's um, yeah, that really turned out well. And 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 I was actually able to turn things around for me by doing online teaching for mandolin and guitar. 
car. And um, that was a really good thing. I had a lot of encouragement from my buddy, Nate Lee. He said, yeah, you got to start doing that. And then, yeah. And so he really got me going. And I appreciate that. Um, and, um, but yeah, it was a good time. You know, I, I finally felt like I got to sit down and, and focus on practicing things that you just don't quite have enough time to do when you're going several directions at once. What are some of those things that you were found yourself focusing on? Because one thing I have to say is, especially going over, you sent me um, quite a few files to listen to. And the one thing that you have is some of the most incredible tone. (laughs) It is. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Every song, every track. I mean, tasteful, great playing. In that tone, oh my goodness! So, what is it? Something that what is something that you worked on? Because you you're on the road. You said for forty years. I've been on the road for seems like forever, and um, and uh, I worked. I, I went back and started working on uh, jazz studies and improv again, and so I could focus on trying to expand my language. I did an enormous amount of listening, uh, specifically like to Cannibal Adderley. several others but i really and, and i can you can never i can never play like him but there's so much to learn from that rhythmic syn- syncopations and things um and uh i got the chance I, during covid we started cheating on covid and i had a good friend that lived across the street he was a great jazz guitarist and a great flat picker too and and so we would play across the room from each other we would play jazz standards and you know he's been a full-time jazz player for a long long time and his name is randy mcspad he's up in colorado now and, and then as we got back we started getting closer and closer and closer then could share a music stand for for to read standards and things like that and he, he helped me with a lot of things i could then take take home and work on and uh, and that was a really cool thing and i started uh, trying to experiment more with latin sounds um Although, you know, you know, the great, at least in our genre, the great Latin guy plays great Latin of us, Isaac Iker, you know, his stuff is so you know, overwhelming, it's amazing. And um, I thought I might get back and pick up some old-time fiddle stuff. I ended up hardly opening my fiddle case at all, and uh, and that was fun. But I wrote a lot of music. I wrote a lot of instrumental tunes. I wrote a lot of vocal tunes, and um, and I recorded a bunch of those tunes. And I and I still have a bunch more to record. I hope to f- finish out my fall after these next couple of weeks, just transcribing new music I've written and done quick recordings of, so I could then see how I want to develop it and see where it wants to go, what it wants to be, you know. If you're praying, man, this may be the time You will have your detractors Hey, don't you pay them no mind You know the voices, they'll come from inside Sooner or later, there'll be no place to hide, and it will all work. 
it looks like you're you're kind of maybe aiming for February 2023 of a release. It'd be nice if I could get something together by then. Sure. Um, and and another pro- a project I've been heavily involved in, uh, I've been engineering and played on is a project with my buddy Chris Sanders. She's one third of the Hard Road Trio. She has a new project out, and I sent a couple of those tunes to you. One called Charlie, and I think maybe one called Winterbirds. And so uh, we we are, have literally been mastering that today, and um, I'm looking forward to that project coming out. And I, hopefully, that project will be released about that time then too, or maybe a little sooner. Do you like the Beatles and release it at Christmas, right? And, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, and people will stand in line to get the digital download. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> and and so uh, if I could get my act together, that would be great. But I'm not sure I will. Um, I'd also like to do another duo album or two with my buddy Tim May over in over in Nashville. Yeah, uh, the one song that we were just talking about, I believe it's called We Can You. So it was for uh, Preston Thompson, that uh, fundraiser. Yeah, that was a, on a CD that was released by uh, Preston Thompson Guitars, I believe, and um, and we uh, recorded that with Tim over at Tim Rob Studio over in Nashville, and um, it's in the good old bluegrass key of A flat, and um, <laughs> and which you know, which is a great key. It's kind of right in the middle of the neck, you know, and uh, um, and, and so uh, I'd like to get that going. I mean, we wouldn't release that on our own project, but I'd certainly like to get that into the shows because it's such a great tune. I think he wrote that with his friend Mike Laidley, but uh, could be wrong about that. But I believe that's who he wrote with. That's a wonderful song, and it's 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 interesting trying to find stuff about you. You you share the name with the uh, the former drummer from Journey, and so when you type in Steve Smith, I got a lot of crazy uh, fusion stuff at first uh, with some <laughs> <laughs> some crazy guitar, and I'm like, wait, I don't think this is the same guy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, also at one time the world record pole vault holder. Uh, Paul Volter was named Steve Smith too so um, he can play drums and he can jump right? <laughs> so how did you get into mandolin you 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 play all types of music and and you're composing and different things like that but what was the initial bug that got you started playing right you know I, I grew up in a musical environment really my dad was a really good player he played old-time string band music he played western swing music and next door his little sister lived and she was a concert pianist and so um you know, I always like to tell people, if we played baseball at my house, we listened to Bob Wills and Bill Monroe. If we played baseball at her house, we listened to Brahms and Beethoven, you know, through the windows of this big house in Virginia. And so there was all this stuff going on. But I really started playing rhythm guitar, uh, backing my dad up on mandolin. And um, and and I, I picked up the mandolin, played a couple of tunes, you know, but... but um, but I, uh, uh, but really the banjo, Earl Scruggs, I started doing heavy doses of Earl Scruggs. And, uh, and then next thing you know, a banjo showed up under the Christmas tree one year. 
and and so I just dove into that head first and 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 really learned a lot of that stuff. And so my first my first professional work when I graduated from high school as a full time player, I I um, I was playing bluegrass banjo at Bush Gardens in a band with Jim Lauderdale and and uh, Kathy Coon and all these players. And uh, it was a pretty fertile time to be young. But I I started working with some with a mandolin player named Tom Espinola and his music. Um, I was really taken by his music, his style, his drive, every, just everything. His 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 you know his syncopation, his sense of humor, and I still am to this day. And uh, I heard him doing that, and I just said, I'm going to do that. And so I had a pretty good mandolin, and so uh, uh, that I had gotten. And so I just I put everything else away and dove headfirst into mandolin, and have never come up. I think. Yeah. <laughs> what was the first mandolin? Well, I, I used to use my dad's uh, Epiphone. He had an Epiphone Adelphi model, I think. He bought right after he got out, out of World War II. He was in the Army Air Corps, and um, he and a buddy went down and bought a guitar and a mandolin, you know, kind of a match pair. And then um, I, I stumbled onto an old Gibson mandolin, uh, 24 Lore. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, I'd lived in a closet for 17 years from the original owner, and uh, they, you know, uh, they weren't going for that much. We took it and had it appraised, and I got a loan and bought it when I was in high school. And so um, with the intent of probably maybe trading it for a nice flathead master tone at some point. But I, um, once the mandolin bug bit me, I said, uh, I think I'll keep this one. And it's a really great one. It's one of that early batch, February 18th, Snow Versi. It's a real, real Haas mandolin. You stumbled across it. <laughs> that is odd. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Well, it was a friend of mine in high school. A friend of mine in high school had it it was like a family thing and uh and um the guy must have been a classical player and uh uh you know it was in it was a virgin it was in mint condition of course if you saw it now it looks like it's been down the road behind a car you know but, uh, <laughs> yeah it's been played on the road 30 years you know but uh but it's a really it's a really great mandolin uh but i use ellis mandolins now because i just totally love them and um the, you know the build quality is so incredible and the low end on these mandolins is so thick and warm i just love it Tom Ellis, I, I, I interviewed him for the podcast and I got to go to his shop and mm-hmm. he got out once we got done with the inner got done with the interview. He got out um, his lore and he got out two mandolins that he built for himself. And I'll, and I'll tell you what, I would have taken either one of those two mandolins over that lore any day. Now, granted, that lore is probably kind of sleepy and not getting tons of play. But hit those two mandolins, I mean, they're two of the best sounding mandolins to this day I've played. They're incredible. They're great. I know both. I know all three of those mandolins, and um, and I've played them all three, and as you did, all together. Um, and they're really great. You know, Tom. Um, Tom has this touch and, and knowledge and skill set that, to, you know, he's just, you know, he's he's a, he's a great artist and a great genius too. He knows how to put the sound in there, and uh, and I've just, um, you know, I have I have a couple of them, and I just I just totally love them. I just totally love them. Now, how did you go to school for composition? That's something you don't normally hear mandolin players, you know, going going into. I had been playing uh, uh, for a good while, and um, I played in a group called Cloud Valley over in Charlottesville, Virginia, with banjoist Bill Evans and Missy Rains and uh, and our friend Fred Halligan, who now lives up in Oregon. And um, and uh, I got married. And when I got married, it was a pretty lucrative musical situation there, but I got married and my wife uh, had had her first big job. She's a plant molecular biologist. She had her first big job at New Mexico State. So um, I packed up and moved out here. And um, when I got here, there really wasn't anything going on musically. And so um, I started going to music school. 
and that's what I did. And so I then focused on composition and theory. I got to study with, among many other great professors, I got to study under Dr. Warner Hutchison, who was a protege of Roy Harris. And, um, you know, it was really great. Um, it was really great because, well, I did a lot, I did a lot of chamber works, so vocal works, all sorts of things like that. But um, what it really did was give me other ways to think, other ways to approach things. And I, and I really appreciate it. I, stuff I learned in school, I use it all the time. It's really great. It's interesting because a lot of people don't really talk much about theory in the bluegrass world per se, um, and it really applies to so many things. And you know, it's it's daunting to look at, but it really opens up a lot of doors in your playing once you understand even just a little bit of it. I agree. You know, and I um, I got um, I had to really dive. Well, of course, they the music school there they had they wanted to have nothing to do with a mandolin, so <laughs> I kind of went back and got into guitar. I, st I studied jazz guitar and classical guitar, and. Um, uh, learned so much there, and then uh, suddenly I was in a jazz orchestra at the school, which was a lot of fun. You're playing big band chart arrangements, and that was a lot of fun to play, you know, with 20 horns and, you know, piano, bass, and drums, and a guitar, and that was a great learning experience, and, um, and uh, you know, it sort of you know, it sort of, it sort of helped shape me when I started playing in some Western swing bands. I had that sort of big band sort of feel, like the big Bob Wills bands, you know, Tiffany transcription, you know, time period which was a lot of fun man th those bob wills tunes the uh i play every now and again with a guitar player who knows a couple of those songs and just the the comping and the cool movement of the chords is is incredible to play amongst it's really cool stuff and um i spent a bunch of time uh for a while learning a bunch of eldon shamlin stuff and uh and that was a lot of fun and I, I would like be like an ant playing announcement so long but um i really enjoyed learning that stuff all, you know his voice movement so you'd have a whole chord voice move then a single note voice move it was really really a great really great thing to learn and kind of dive into those first albums from the 90s that you had out those definitely have a bit of a um like a I don't want to say school, but it wasn't what I expected. It's kind of like classical and a little bit of, of that early Wyndham Hill style of music. Well, that fits. That's what it fits. There's all sorts of, all those influences are there. Um, you know, I, um, I put together, I went up and uh, I got a really great job working. Have you, have you had Charlie Provenza on this show? I have not. He's a great mandolin player and he's been a big influence on me. And he's, he's one of the great players. He's a Winfield winner too. Um, he kind of he turned me on well, to his stuff and uh, and uh, and uh, Dave Peter stuff and all that sort of thing. The many of those that that sound genre, and then I went up and worked with him uh, in a in a Russian restaurant uh, playing gypsy music, and we um, I played guitar on those on that that gig every night. You know we had uh, I think we, our longest stint we did 131 nights straight without a day off. Oh um, my gosh! And so you know we were playing playing ethno European stuff, the sort of gypsy Django sort of stuff. We were playing you know we'd play a little classical stuff, but during the days he he was always doing transcription projects, and I was always writing. And I wrote that first album, the the um, Distant Lands album. I wrote that first album there. Then when I got back here, I got a chance to start working some with the uh, uh, great saxophonist John Dodge. John had worked with Ahmad Jamal's, uh, Clark Terry, Sarah Vaughan, and uh, he 
lived here because his much younger wife was uh, doing um, a graduate work at the university. So, so we had we started playing some together. I kind of say he let me play because he was just, you know, you know, beyond me, centuries beyond me in, in experience and age. And so, pulling that sound in was a big part of things. And then, um, you know, just starting to incorporate other sounds. You know, I was I was hearing a lot of music, uh, a lot of jazz. Um, a lot of bluegrass and old time. Uh, I did hear new age music. I heard all sorts of things. And uh, so I just sort of figured that anything goes, just whatever, whatever's coming to me, I'd take it, you know, kind of thing with those compositions um, in the, on that first album. The, um, and the second album, you know, well, the third album, really, I, I did a vocal project called Other Places, Times, and Lives. And then, you know, this sort of enhanced, I started playing solo because, uh, you know, you couldn't quite make it around here as a mandolin player in southern New Mexico. So I started playing solo and traveling some. And, um, and uh, then I did, the, um, I did the Desert Night Project, and Tom Espinola produced that. That's a, that's a little bit more ensemble things, but there's a lot of live playing on there. Um, all the guitar pieces like that, for example, are live takes and um, in the studio. And, you know, so that, that ranges all around because it's just, it's just for me, just lots of different flavors that I have going on. It's really what it is instead of one focused thing stylistically. And a couple of those tracks, Frozen Lake and When Small Children Sleep, those are finger style on the mandolin. Right, uh, Frozen Lake is fingerstyle on the mandola. I did is that I had uh, long ago had played some gigs with Peter Rowan. He had a mandola with him that had these um, had these octave strings on it, and I, I played it and it was so cool. And so I had my mandola strung like that for a long time. I did a recording with Bill Evans with that instrument too and that tuning. But um, uh, and so I, I discovered that by fingerstyling playing with it, I would put the heavy string on the top and the lighter string on the bottom. And so if I'm coming in with a downstroke with a pick you know, the heavier string absorbed the shock so it didn't knock everything out of whack. But in the case of finger picking, you if you if you think of like a fingertop pattern, you hit the heavy note, the lower pitch note with a downstroke, and then you're you hit the higher pitch notes with upstrokes with your fingers. And so that's how that sound sort of starts to blend in in that kind of kind of jangly way. And um and so that's all that's all uh fingertop stuff. And that album there's a tune in there called When Small Children Sleep. <laughs> Thank you. 
a it's a mandolin quartet. Actually, it's a it's one mandolin, a mandocello, and two mandolas. And um, I played all that stuff with finger style with fingers, and then all the tremolo stuff I did a fingernail tremolo, um, which is you know uh, you make sure your fingernails are in good shape. But I did it all like with my index finger and got a real even sound, and it's almost a synth type sound, but but it's the fingernail. <laughs> how did you how did you develop is that a technique that I, I guess I'm not familiar if that's a if that's a technique that existed or, or is that something that you developed yourself I don't know I um I'd seen people like like play things with their fingers just a little bit here and there and that stuff but I just did it because it was just the sound I was hearing and I knew that um you know I knew that we could record it like that uh Tom Espinola was engineering and so we brought the mics in about two and a half inches from the top of the mandocello, for example, and from those mandolas where we're getting it. So we're getting that sound because it's not a very loud sound, as you can imagine. Right. And uh, and so we pulled that sound in and really got, got a pretty cool thing. We used a lexicon reverb on it, which made it really, really kind of a nice space to it as well. Oh, those lexicon reverbs were, those were used on a lot of really cool projects. Yeah, they were, they were the things. It's time now they got this one called Bricosti, which I'd love to own, but don't quite have the budget for you know how that goes <laughs> yeah yeah it's did you tune that in traditional tuning when you were doing those finger style things yes everything was uh straight up tuning so i used um i used like a 1914 mandocello and then i used two different mandolas i uh borrowed um i borrowed mandolas from uh Thomas Mullen's wife, Lorraine Deweezy, she had a, a, like a, an H4 and an H1 or something. So we got a little bit different timbre with the instruments. And then I used an F4 too to get a little bit of top end on that thing as well. So they were all oval hole instruments. Actually, none of those instruments belong to me. It's funny. Um, <laughs> and, and we got that, uh, that's how we got that sound. And, um, and it, it came together pretty nice. When you said you were touring solo, was that solo mandolin? No, I was doing a lot of guitar, a lot of guitar vocals doing original works and then stuff you know do some blake tunes and things like that um and i would also use the mandola for vocals too and with that tuning it kind of spread it out pretty nice um you know and uh and i, I would do a few vocal tunes on mandolin and then you know half a dozen on mandola and i would also do some vocal tunes with the uh with the mandocello it's it's surprisingly good for that and a capo works on it quite well i had this big I had this big, like, antique Hamilton capo that st I still use on the mandocello when I need to get a sound like that, you know, for studio stuff. And then um, I would also carry, sometimes I'd carry a dad gag guitar along, a nylon string guitar along, too, so I wouldn't have to switch around in tune because, you know, I, I hate to have to sit and listen to people retune their whole guitar <laughs> by the embarrassment of having to retune your own guitar like that, you know, in front of people. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that was, that's how I was going with that for a good while. I asked that because on your Mandolin Mondays that you did for uh, David Benedict, you did um, Crossroads, a version of Crossroads that was incredible. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, that sort of was an improv solo on that. And um, I, I do that once in a while, you know, I'll throw that tune out there. But but not, I'm not working solo these days. So that's just one that... Um, one that I just do, I, you know, I do a lot of stuff like that simply for the fun of it. I thought, oh, well, that would be a good one to try. What's really cool about that one, too, is you really frame the chord changes when you play the solo. Like, you can still feel those changes going along, even though there's no backing for you. And I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit about that, because I do think that's something that all players kind of struggle with when soloing, even with a backing band, is, um, you know, making it sound a little bit more interesting 
Right. Uh, well, for that, that's uh, exactly. Let me see. I've got, actually got a mandolin right here. Let me look at my pen. So what I'm doing um, on that tune, I'm doing a lot of uh, a lot of inverted uh, dominant seven arpeggios. So, so for example, I, I play I, I work the I work the arpeggio for the one chord, which is G, and I really play a G nine arpeggio, but I started a third, so it's like B D F A, you know, and skip the root, and um, and so that's how I get that sound. That's sort of a, a little bit more jazzy sort of sound, and then that pattern will move up or down, you know, kind of a I like to think of it as like a slant pattern, you know. So if you've got, if you're playing in G, you're playing G7, you can make, you know, like the Jethro Burns seventh chord, right? You know, you got B, B, F, B, you know, four, three, two on the four, three, two strings. It's funny that it lays out like that. <laughs> and if you reach up, if you open up your hand and cover the notes on the seventh fret, for example, then you get, you get three, five, seven, nine, three, thirteen or six, however you want to call it, the E. And so that gives you, that kind of opens up that dominant chord sound without playing any, without playing any what you call altered dominant. And then you can flow right into the next chord, either up or down in the same way if you, if you chose to. And, um, and, and then drop a few blues patterns in there or, or turn that, that really almost turns into a minor pentatonic shape. So you can do that and then integrate like pentatonic into a full blue scale. And that's, that's really all I'm doing on there. It's, it's, it's pretty much it. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, and it's just one of those things like I could listen to anybody like like that for hours, which is a rare thing when, you know, playing mandolin and singing uh, and just doing that <laughs> solo is tough. And yeah, it was really, really great. I loved it. Well, you know, um, yeah, keep it the, what, the most important element really is the drive, you know, for a tune like that. Um, but there's all sorts of tunes that work like that. I've uh, I've done I've, I've since over the last few years, since I've been playing with Tim May, I've really started using the octave mandolin a lot more and i'm i'm I just love i have an octave mandolin by made by bill Bussman, all played mandolins and it's uh it's a teardrop shape one based on my old mandocello but with an x brace and uh, i think it's a 22 and a half inch scale or 22 and three quarters something like that but um i really love that because it gives me a voice that sometimes i can split it out and it could be a little bit cordy like a guitar other and then i can sit right back and pick it like a mandolin and it finger styles pretty well too, or, or a combination of chicken picking, you know, like you pick and fingers, you know, because sometimes, sometimes like if you're playing backup behind somebody, or if you just want to get back into the mix a little bit more, if you switch over to fingers, um, rather than just the cross picking thing, you can really soften up your, your approach, your attack, your mood. I find that to be, I find that to, to be appealing to me and, and backing people up and things. That was one thing that really stood out to me in those recordings you sent is your accompaniment is very unique and is in no way interferes with what's going on with the song at all, which is tough to do. You know, how do you how do you approach how do you approach when you're playing with a uh, with a, an acoustic guitar player and a vocalist? Because you you're playing some lead stuff, but it never interferes with the melody. Well, you you know, sometimes sometimes you just want to provide a little color feel, and then sometimes you want to have a little bit of a flurry of notes. Um, I sort of, I sort of, when I'm when I'm playing like that, I just sort of, this is silly, but you know, maybe this is the zen of it. I sort of just imagine what it's going to be like in my head as I'm playing, what it's going to sound like, and um, I try to use tones. I try to use tones that are are are, are expressive and more voice-like, if that makes sense. You know, um, I spent. I can remember spending a lot of time, you know, my favorite tremolo is still David Grisman. I just love his tremolo is so big and fat and, and so always so perfect. 
I remember uh, when I was on the road with Cloud Valley, see, we were going about two weeks a month, it seemed like always. And um, I'd come home one summer, I came home and I kept repeating a couple of things on some records. And I, and I said, well, I got the same kind of pick, same kind of mandolin. Just sit here and figure out what it takes to get that sound. And so I try to use that sound. And I, I think that Grisman's voice um, many times is so much like a horn. And, um, and so I sort of take that attitude like it's a horn or like it's a voice saying something you know even even if it's a note instead of you know e even if it's a note that you you know suppose you've got like a you know like a, or la, la, you want to ease into it hit it straight on or hit it a little late and those that kind of sneaks in behind it those are little things i try to do just because well i, I just think it's fun you know, you can sort of scoop into a note. It works great, like when you're playing backup. If you do want to play a tremolo note, like a long note, uh, well, you could do a moving line too. But, you know, you could either hit it right on top of the downbeat or, you know, if you're doing like a 16th note pattern, don't start that tremolo until your first or second 16th note. And then it drops in rhythmically right, just right in behind the beat and really has a nice, very violin-y type sound because, you know, I want that, I want that, you know, that legato type sound. Legato's tough to tough to nail on the mandolin. I I think it, it, I mean the people who do it well. It it sounds easy and beautiful. It is not easy to replicate. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, uh, my my classical guitar teacher worked with me a bunch on that, and and that's really carried over to my mandolin playing. But you know who else whose tone I think is really some of the best ever. And we we would talk and on it as much as we could was the late great Butch Baldessari. His tone, his tone really as good as anyone ever um and we would just talk about that and how to how to hit the strings and play through the strings he also got me into playing more downstrokes um slow eighth note passages uh oftentimes i'll play them with straight up downstrokes in order to get a certain consistency of tone um and then you know and, and you can i mean you can experiment with that and see play a scale and play eighth note scale downs to play eighth note scale down ups it's not that one is better or or different than the other other than it's a different feel you know it's a you know uh you know sometimes sometimes downstrokes can get get your point across differently than down upstrokes what is it what is when you sit down and work on tone for you um because that's one of the things everybody strives for even the best players are continuing to work on their tone you know john reichman known for great tone still working on it you know what what, what does that look like for you when you sit down and work on tone well, um, years ago, I got to have a really great lesson with Andy Statman, and he he got my right hand act together. This was in the 80s, and um, it really helped me because it helped me, just helped me understand everything from subdivisions, but also uh, tone, volume, dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. And so none of us are ever perfect, but, you know, I try to get the, an even part of both strings as I go through both directions all the time so I can keep a balanced sound and my model I use in my head is just the simply taking a violin bow for example and pulling it across one note and you get that big long note right and so I try to get that sort of tone 
out of my mandolin when I play. Uh, and then, then if I can get like a portion of it, I can feel pretty good about myself, you know. But it, and that's hard to do because you know we can't get the sustain of a violin or a tato. But if we can sort of emulate that in our head and 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 our, let our ear kind of help our our physical end of things get there, that's that's sort of my approach to it. And um and I try to make sure I'm hanging on to my notes. Um, uh, you know, I do practice scales and things like that, of course. And but um. But sometimes I don't get a chance to practice them, but once a week, you know, so I always try to have little one little teeny thing that that both gives gets my head in a good space, but also which is also including tone that sounds good in a warm up. Then I can walk on the stage and go, you know, uh, so I try to do that. And then and in the studio, I, I try to do the same thing. Um, I just try to get nice, even, nice, even contact with the pick. I um, and you can get lots of different colors with different types of picks, but um that that sound, I just really work on, you know, work on that sort of legato sound of a violin bow or a horn playing it out, and that David Grisman tremolo, man, that's that's kind of a good place for me to set. I find it interesting. If I think people should definitely always either use a mirror or maybe every now and again try and record their right hand playing, because I think people would be surprised how many times they don't play through both strings when you're picking. I agree. I can hear it on recordings and I can hear it live and I can hear it when I do it too. And I always go, okay, time for a little tone reality check. Um, <laughs> you know, because whenever something's going on, I always, it's, it's generally always the right hand that's not there. You know, um, you know, it's funny that I remember I listened to a podcast you did maybe earlier in the summer with Ben Winship and he said, this, he just like, yeah, it's usually the right hand that's, 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 that's fallen first. Um, and so, you know, if you, you can keep a note going, and uh, keeping that consistent sound going on, you know, I like to have, I like to, I like to be, uh, I like to be really efficient with my motion, and uh, reduce everything, so all the energy goes right into the point of contact. And if I'm a little off, that's the first thing I notice. It's like, okay, my tone's not there. It's probably my right hand, you know. Efficiency is a big one. Watching Tony Rice is always a humbler for me. Yeah, right. You're right. That guy's just so cool and like a statue sometimes and just like economy of motion. Well, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of great players that you, there's a lot to learn from. You, you watch you watch Nate Lee or, or you watch John Reisman or you watch you watch Joe Walsh play um, uh, and you see that that economy of motion that they use when they play. It's just uh, it's pretty inspiring because they can get all of their sounds that they get from that same motion and that's an important thing uh, to not have to reinvent the wheel with your muscles or your physical stroke because you're changing your sound yeah joe walsh actually was just at my place um a few weeks back and it was really interesting to watch him playing he was playing my mandolin and just that economy of motion and the amount of volume he was able to pull out with you know like you would think he was playing like just hammering away at it but it was just all right. smooth technique and it was beautiful sounding. Yeah, he's got it down, and um, and he's you know he's done his work, you know, and uh, you know, and, and he I think he's one of the great one of the greatest modern players there is, and it's and so anytime I get a chance to see him play uh, on a video or something, man, I, I just study that. It's great stuff. Yeah, he's got a new album coming out here soon. I haven't heard it yet, but Daryl Anger said it's just mind bendingly good. And coming from Daryl, <laughs> I'm gonna I take that as uh, as as gospel. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say so. So, yeah, I'd like to. I need to get on his list and get him to send me one. And uh, 
uh, and and I'd like to hear it because it's always it's always worth sitting down and learning, listening to it, of course, and sort of memorizing what's going on. Even if something comes up that you'll never ever play out, but if you sit down and just learn a little something from a recording, you know something will come to you, or you'll you'll, you'll be inspired to, to 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 go your own way with it, which can be a lot of fun. Now you you teach a lot of camps and do a lot of education stuff, and which I think is great and. What are some things that you think, I mean, it's tough, it's it's player-based, so, you know, obviously we can't just generalize and, and do that, but there's got to be some things that you've noticed o- over all these years of doing education that that people tend to uh, fall on as far as bad habits that you would be like, I'm surprised so many people do this, but it's just common. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, uh, you know, you um Gosh, I'm gonna be careful here. I guess the um, well, you know, get, trying to get people's right hands moving so they don't, so they don't, you know, you know, kind of stab into the strings to play one, and then stab into the strings to play the other for the upstroke. Getting people to work through the strings, you know, um, especially you know, if if people are, are are adults and they're there, they don't want to have to spend time that it took you and I or whoever to get someplace. They want to be able to just you know, get in the car and go, you know, t- tone wise, skill wise. But if people, I try to get people to f- focus on the fundamentals, and um, and and the right hand fundamentals especially because everything starts there, and uh, and then you know you bring your left hand in, you start doing your scales and your patterns, and you bring your fundamentals with you, that becomes really good. You know, a lot of people, you know, trying to get people to not squeeze their mandolin so hard that they want to squeeze the paint out of the neck. Um, <laughs> you know, trying to get people to uh, not you know load their wrists, you know, cock their wrists downward or upward, you know, so. You know, you want people to have, you know, if you imagine your hand down to your side, that's the most natural position your wrist is in at any time in your life. And so when you come up, there's your mandolin with that same wrist position. Of course, you got to bend it this way and that way, but let that be your default rather than have your, you know, wrist collapsed. And uh, little things, getting grown-ups to get out of those habits, you know, um, can be can can be the, the hard part, the challenging part. It's good to have a good teacher that you can do. The minute you go to a kid, you get to learn a lot of different things. Um with kids, kids are pretty open to things, um, and I really enjoy that too. And um, and so you know, it it varies. Um, everything from people having their mandolins with straps way up by their chin to which which is real bad for your right and left hand technique. And then you know, and then you know, kids want to walk around with it like slash. And and so um, <laughs> and so you know, they want to like you know do that. And so you know, you got to find that place to get that place where you can get them ergonomically in a, in a good position to work and then um and then most importantly you know the message i want to get across to anybody is you know spend time listening to the music you want to play you got to know if you're trying to learn a song say you're trying to learn say you're trying to learn fork and deer or something you know go listen to fork and deer and go listen to you know go listen to other tunes in that style don't be listening to eric Clapton and then want to play fork and deer because you know you know you're not you're changing your focus so, so it's important for people to really spend time listening to the music that they want to learn how to play. That's great. Now, do you teach, do you do online lessons? Are people able to sign up with you and, and, and teach online or uh, t- learn from you online? Yes, I do online lessons. If people go to my webpage, you see that desertnight.com. But I, I do have a couple of students I'm, I'm having back in live again now that, that are here in town that I really miss their company. You know, it's just fun to, fun to, to get back to that. So, um, 
so I do a few live lessons and we do workshops and, and, and I to travel out and do private weekend workshops with a group of people or just with an individual person too. Those were a lot of fun. Occasionally someone will come here and stay the weekend and, and we work on something, but none of that has happened coming here since COVID. You know, we've, we shut everything down here. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I can imagine. Yeah. That's cool to spend a weekend with you and, and, and learn. I mean, gosh, your tone is so so good. And that leads me actually to another question because you were saying before we started, you just kind of finishing up a, a studio. And how do you capture that tone? Because that's another thing. It, it's People can, I've heard some great players have bad tone on albums and you know, it's not the player, you know, it's just not captured proper. Uh, well, you know, I do. I mean, I am sort of a studio geek and a gear. I'm just kind of a gear geek. Okay. So, um, but I, I go in and I play, I try to play, um, all my solos, I try to play as much live performance as I can because I think it makes for better records when you can play things live um, as much as you can. Um, but um, I use a, I usually just use like an XY configuration with small diaphragm mics. I use 184s, but I put them through a Neve preamp, a Neve stereo preamp, and that warms them up. And I also have good converters, you know. And then once it once it gets through that analog stage, it goes into digital, and there it is. You know, I, I EQ very little. But it's just uh, it's um, it's just sort of the way I've worked on my tone, um, and I feel I generally feel very comfortable in the studio. So, you know, I'm able to get that sound. I have done recording sessions like in like in, in other studios, and they'll use um, a, so a, like a like a a 1073 D bass preamp, for example, has some color to it. Where if you use a Grace M201 or something like that, they're really they're really clear with no color to them. So sometimes you can come off sound a little bright or brittle if you're not, if, if it's not mic right and things like that. So it's a, a be very different sounds. Those are, those are the first places I look for different types of tone. Um, if I'm doing a single, a single mic recording, I stereo mic everything. If I'm going to do a single mic recording. I like to run through a tube preamp and um, because it just gives it, it's just a different sort of sheen on a, on a single mic. So um, I'll do that quite a bit too. And someone says, Oh, we just want it mono. And so, you know, I'm going to send a file out or something. I do that. And you said you use the KM184s, the, the, the reissued ones? I do. I sure do. Uh, the 84s are great, but the 184s, you know, with this combination with the Neve preamp, hard to beat. I think that with some of the some of the really clear preamps that they call uncolored preamps, um, some of them, I think the 84s can be a little brilliant. But if you've got one that's got a little, it's got that adds some color, like with an output transformer or something like that, I think they're made for it. They're perfect. What's the Neve preamp you use? I use an R&D, Rupert Neve Design um, 5012. I've got a couple of those I use. You know, Neve had sold his original Neve company, and then he started Rupert Neve Designs over in Wimberley, Texas. He just passed away two, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And so, um, so he set up shop and started building a whole new line of products. And um, and I shopped around for a couple of years before getting these, and now I just, I just love them. They really work for everything. Um, and then, but I don't use them for everything, but they really work for everything. And I, I really like them. They're great on vocals, great on guitars. Um, and, um, they're pretty darn good on acoustic bass too. Yeah. Those vintage, uh, vintage KM 84s are, they're so expensive. And I got a, uh, I got one of the reissues and I love it. I think it sounds great. They are really great. Uh, you know, people dish them. I don't know why, but they do. And then, uh, you know, my favorite Norman small diaphragm mic is a KM86, 
which is like an 84, but it's the uh, the uh, diaphragm sits uh, across crossways instead of right with it and sits, and it's a multi-pattern mic uh, with a bass roll-off. Those are really sweet, and uh, they're even more. So one day, you know, maybe I'll trip over some on the street. And be <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, those are kind of out of my reach for, for reality right now. Yeah. How close do you usually uh, put the microphones? Do you have like a distance you kind of like to keep them at? I'm used- I'm usually um, I'm usually say eight or ten inches away, and uh, I don't like to record real hot. Um, and if I'm uh, and, and so I find that it works really well that way. I don't have to dig in too hard um, to get the sound I want. Um, there is a you know I do use a pair. I, I do some recording down in El Paso it's about once a year or so, and they've got a matched pair of KM84s that are really nice, and they run them through an S uh, an SSL board which. Uh, SSL boards are okay. I'm, I'm not a big fan of their preamps, but but that's a really great sound too. But the XY configuration, and I usually have that right up about where the about where the end of the fingerboard is, like eight inches out. That works for me. If I have to really, if I had something I got to really dig in and play hard, I'll, um, maybe I'll cut my, I might I might cut my uh, my preamp back a little bit or move my distance back. And or sometimes pop a compressor in there just to catch some of those tall peaks, you know, from a chop. Because you know I'm handling chops, and you know, you know sometimes you can break glass with them. <laughs> right, right. And for people who are listening and and, and, and might not know what the uh, XY mic technique is, could you uh, could you just do like a quick? Well, really, you have you have, really with the XY, you have the diaphragms at a ninety degrees opposition. So so if you if you like look down at your waist and put your two index fingertips uh, together uh, with your fingers and it sort of makes sort of like a chevron shape. You know, you got, there's your X, Y. And so you're pulling both ways and that gives them, so they don't, they don't have any kind of phase issues like that. It works really well. And, and so that's been a real, it's been a real go-to for me. I try to make sure they were just really even and closely, closely distance wise mess within the stand. And, and I haven't had any problems with them like that. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with the tone you're getting. <laughs> those, well, it's just so great. And, and early on too, I mean, those '90s albums, you know, uh, your your tone's been great uh, the whole time, right up to the recordings that you've been doing recently that you sent me. It's really amazing. Those things from the '90s—that's all my 24 lore. And um, and then it wasn't until 2008 that I started using Ellis mandolins. And um, and I just I feel like the Ellis has a more warm low end. And um, and Tom has done such a great job of putting that in, um, and um, I, I definitely don't think it's by accident. He knows what he's doing, and uh, and so that big warm sound for me is what I like because, you know, all mandolins that are good, they all have all the high in the world. Every mandolin you ever play has got all the high in the world, but a lot of mandolins, many really good mandolins, don't have that low end, and so um, Tom has been able to capture that really in every one I've ever played. How did you start, or how did you discover Ellis mandolins? A good friend of mine in Virginia had an Ellis mandolin. I was there visiting, staying overnight. He said, "Here, check this out." And so I played it, and I said, "Ooh, that's nice." Um, and uh, and you know, it, and and so um, I just sort of started following him a little bit, and checking out. And I really wanted to, um, I wanted to get into a, a, a more modern. I, I call this a more modern sound. It's not a lower sound to me. I mean, uh, and because hey, I have the lower sound. I want that. I can go get it. You know, open the case. And do you have- and I'm very grateful and, and fortunate to have that. But, um, but I, I um, you know, we I finally went down there and met him after Camp Bluegrass over in Leveland, Texas, and and I drove down to meet him. And um, 
we hung out for an afternoon and looked at everything and and um and and we agreed that um he'd build me one and so um he did and um he sent it to me and um and i i still remember opening up the case opening up the box opening up the case and um and just hearing it for the first time and 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 it's always been to me that good that it's exciting to play that mandolin because so much but you know there's so many great players with so many great mandolins and they all will know that you know if you've got a great mandolin it kind of makes you responsible for going in and getting that sound if that makes sense you know yeah i mean if you have a good mandolin but you don't play it well you know maybe you're not doing the mandolin like you ought or you should but i mean by having a good mandolin i feel very i feel obligated to get that sound out and so um and so i just try to go find what's in any of them you know yeah did you have specific specs that you were looking for or did you just kind of tell them what you were looking for and tom did his magic well you know i had my i had my lore with me then and um and 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 it's a real good one of the best three or four of them i've played and i've played a whole lot of them the um but um i just said i just wanted a little bit more warm low end and um and and so you know it's um he said he thinks he knows how to do it he you know i don't know if he actually did that for me but he knew what i was asking for and um and he sure did it and um and you know i just man i can't put him down i love him <laughs> yeah i mean i still think about um it was the the one had black tuning pegs and the other one had white tuning pegs and it was one of the black ones they they both sounded you know completely different and that one i can still you know just hear that sound that buttery tone that came out of that mandolin it was it it's pretty amazing and the thing about those mandolins that um like like many great mandolins is you know you can go up the neck to the 10th or 12th fret and play a note and it sounds like an open string um and um which which then again makes you the player responsible for being able to get it when you get there you know <laughs> it's yeah inspiration inspiration you know when you get a new instrument is a, is a funny thing and you know we get we get inspired by just the sheer joy of hearing the sound and then we get inspired to to go for more, to dig in more, and that you know to, to go deeper and find out what it's capable of. Because like, oh, I didn't know I could sound like that, and go, maybe I'll try this, maybe I'll try that. Those are really nice things um, with instruments, uh, and and that are very inspiring. I love seeing, I love seeing good instruments in, in anybody's hands because it it almost always does that for them, and it's a great thing. Makes you want to play more. It makes you want to play more, and um, and you know it's 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 kind of funny. It's like I try to play, although since I've been on the road the last many weeks or doing various things, I like to get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and play um, first thing. And um, sometimes I get ten or fifteen minutes at it. Sometimes I can have an hour. But it's a really nice. It's you know I feel like my, I have a clean slate with my my mind, and you know I'm not you know just find a sound, start somewhere, and go with it. You know. And, and those are really inspiring times. And that good mandolin when you're like that, oh man, it's just really, when it's your first thing in the day, it's a really nice thing. I'm going I'm to jump ahead a question then because you just mentioned 10 or 15 minutes with the coffee. And what is something that you recommend? I, I, I like to ask, um, you know, players, because again, and we talked about this earlier, you know, especially as adults who have, you know, jobs. I mean, we're pretty fortunate, I feel, to, uh, to, to play a mandolin for a living and not everybody's got that. And so what do you recommend for them to do to find that, to find that love and to get better? Well, you know, circling back to what I said earlier, I'm real big on the fundamentals. And um, so suppose, so suppose, you know, you got a job, you got four kids, you got a job payments and a dog, you know, and I get that. Um, and maybe you've got 45 minutes or so to play, you know, 
you know, if, at least until you really get farther along, it would be good to take the first, even if take five minutes, work on the basics of right-hand pick stroke. Work on that sound. Work on generating your sound, generating your tone and your time. Um, it's it's the right hand, of course, It's gonna that we're going to be the starting point for our tone and our time. And also, it's the right hand that really generates that point of contact where we make where we put, I'm going to say, we put the charge in the music, you know, that we make it sound like it's supposed to sound. So even if it's just five minutes, it's a really great focus. And then, and then you can break out some scales and patterns with the left hand for another five minutes. You know, don't try to eat the whole piece of cake, you know, take one or two and focus on a little bit, focus on your tone, bringing the two of them together. And then if you've got a song you're working on, you know, learn the whole song. Be sure to remember to go back and learn the chords, for example. Um, if, if you don't know the chords, you really only know half the song. Now, the other half of the song might be very complex, but but if you know the chord changes that you're playing on, as you learn the tune, it will make more sense at a faster rate. And 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 lastly, regardless of what level you want to be on, listen to music. You know, listen to listen to what it is you're trying to play. And listen to a lot of different types of music, too, and... Um, I, I funny that I will habitually geek out and listen to like one group or one type of music for like a month at a time before I move on to something else. And uh, but but I feel like at that end, then I know something about it. Um, and so I can't stress listening uh, as much. Try to see people play live when you can, even if it's a video. Again, you get to experience. You hear the sound. You see what it is they're doing to get that sound so it sounds like it's supposed to sound. But the fundamentals, you know on any instrument you play in any style is really, really, um, really uh, a start, place to start. What is the, uh, what do you like to use for strings and picks? Since we're talking so much about tone and, and geekery, which I love. I, I'd love to know what you uh, string them up and what you use for a pick. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> consider that stolen. Geekery. Very, <laughs> your various geekery, consider that stolen. Um, I use GHS A270 strings on all my mandolins. I keep coming back to them. I tried D'Addario um, uh, for a while. You know, I got a dozen sets once, and I just couldn't quite get there with what I was looking for. So I always have always continued to come back to the GHS A270s, and that's a 4026-1611. That really works well for me. Um, uh, I, I, I've heard about these. Uh, my buddy Nate Lee talks about I think these XP coated strings, but I haven't been able to come up with a a couple of pairs of those to see how they are, but the GHS for me really works really well. And for my octave, I have sort of a sort of a custom set I build from from GHS. That's that's nice. It's sort of not quite medium, not quite light in that gap right there. Um, and I use uh, I use tortoiseshell picks. Um, the um, I use them for for as long as I can remember. Now, um, I tried the blue chips, and I, I just couldn't I couldn't get them to be consistent. Um, of course, we're talking to something that's made out of animal material, right? But uh, um, I would use blue chips for a while, and all of a sudden, it seemed like the tone would go away. And I'd go back to my, I'd go back to my tortoiseshell, and whoever I was playing with would go, "Hey, man, what'd you do? Your sound is great." I'd go, oh, I switch back to a tortoiseshell pick. <laughs> Not to picks. I do use blue chip picks on my octave mandolin because I, it is just, it's the right sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I use a combination. So I keep a blue chip and a tortoise in my pocket, and um, and 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 I, you know, I, I'll vary in range anywhere from about one point two to one point five. Each pick is a little different. You know, they're all, you know, again, they're no two that I really alike. 
unless you get a couple made from the same piece of shell or something, you know, so sometimes something a little thicker, it gets the sound I want. Sometimes back off a little bit, gets the sound I want. Yeah, no, I, I love the GHS strings, man. They are, they're awesome. I'm from Michigan. They're from Michigan. I think that's cool. Oh, that's right. You're from Michigan, right? Hey, did you, did you, uh, uh, did you ever fish up there? It's supposed to be really great smallmouth bass fishing up there in the lakes. You know, I um, where my family used to own a marina and a campground right on Lake Huron, and uh, it was more walleye. Although we would oh. catch some bass off the off the um, off the docks and stuff like that, but it was more perch and walleye where I lived. Yeah, I've never done one of those walleye trips. One of these days, maybe I'll do that. Oh man, it's fun. It's a really good time, and actually, it's a really good time if you um if you if you like drinking beer on the water, which leads to the final question: uh, <laughs> Do you have a favorite beer? I have a couple that I like. Um, one of my favorite beers is made here in New Mexico by Santa Fe Brewing Company, and it's called Happy Camper. It's an IPA with a citrus finish. It's a really great beer, and um, it's a go-to beer for me. I also like uh, Sierra uh, Nevada Imperial Stout. Uh, Imperial IPA, excuse me, not so. Uh, it's a it's a really nice beer. It's like that best beer if I'm going to have one beer. I really like that a lot. And of course, I like my old favorites, Guinness Stout. Well, you've got some dates coming up with um, with Tim May here, um, so people should check out. Where um, are you are you playing all over? Are you going to be regionally based? Where are you going to be on the road at? We're going to work. Uh, we're going to start out next week. We'll be up at. Uh, we're going to do a house concert in Albuquerque, and then from there we'll go up to. Uh, We'll go up to Westcliff, Colorado, and play a show, and then back down to um, to Durango and play a show that's affiliated with Fort Lewis College. Uh, and then from there, we'll take a day off, which we'll be driving. So, you know, driving is not really a day off, you know. So, um, And we're going to go down to Tucson and play a house concert there, and, um, and then back here uh, for a day or two. Hopefully, we can get a little studio stuff in. And then we have the Southwest Mandolin Camp. And um, this year's teacher, Southwest Mandolin Camp, or Tim May, is doing early bluegrass all the time. I'll do... Uh, or modern modern bluegrass stuff. I'm gonna do a little bit more Sam Bush stuff again this year. We've got Isaac Iker doing uh, swing and jazz, and he'll do a workshop on Latin mandolin. Uh, Casey Groves doing um, carries the beginners and runs the beginner jam. She's really great at that. And then the great Marla Fibish on Irish mandolin. When when that new album of yours comes out, please let me know. I'll uh, whatever I can do to help push it, and I'll have you back on so we can talk about the new album. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And it's really great to, to be on your show. I, I follow it a lot. It's a really great thing. And to be, and then to have it out with, with Scott and Madeline Cafe, and he does such a great job there. And um, it's really a great thing to, to see this thing grow. It's a really good thing. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I, I'm glad you said that about Scott, because honestly, um, without Scott's help and guidance, and I always say at the very beginning of this podcast, it's, you know, it's sponsored in part by Mandolin Cafe, my favorite website, because it is. And Scott has been just it, uh, as big as a resource as he's been to the mandolin world. He's also been to me with just crazy questions about, you know, like all sorts of different things. He's he's the best. He, he does a very important thing for the mandolin world and for the music community. Um, I do. Th- I go to three web pages in a day. I go to Yahoo for news. I go to a, a web page. It used to be called Gear Sluts, but they turned it to something else, which is a, a pro audio chat group. And then I go to Mandolin Cafe. And at Mandolin Cafe, I can get Mandolin Mondays. I can get Mandolin Beer. And then all this stuff that's going on. And uh, that, that's that's my online day. And then then I'm at work. So I'm not, but I'm not spending my day on that. I'll just say, you know, I hit Facebook once in a while. But but um, but yeah. I mean, I think that I think that. Um, that Scott is, is a very important cog in our, our current, you know, good vibe of Madeline world, you know? Agreed. 
Well, Steve, thank you so much for doing this uh, interview. Your schedule's so busy, and I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you carved out some time here to do it with me. I, it has been really fun talking with you. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks so much for, for taking notice and getting me on there. And uh, and I look forward to, uh, you know, I'll let people know. I'll put it up at the Facebook page that, that this is up. I'll drive some people there. That'd be great. All right. Hey, thanks so much. You take care. All right. Thank you so much to Steve for doing the podcast. And as promised at the top here, got a track from Seth Mulder and Midnight Run's new album. The album's called In Dreams, I Go Back. It came out in September. And he's got a burning instrumental on here I was listening to yesterday that uh, uh, really gets you going. So check out this tune is Bullhead Swamp. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.